so it may have finally happened. We'll see, but in anticipation for this week, I was really excited because last week, Kier said that my choice for this week was something that he really, really fucking likes. So let's see as we talk about F for fake. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who came home a couple of days ago to find that a crackhead had gouged a bunch of marks into his front door and apparently was looking for a guy called Sammy. So all I'm saying is, Sammy, I'm expecting an apology. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, producer, writer, etc. And you know what's strange, dude? You didn't tell me about that. I actually had that happen when I was living in the south side of Glasgow. That someone, <laughs> like, I don't know if they were looking for Sammy, but they were looking for someone. And for some reason, I feel like maybe they were looking for a Sam. That's dude, that's it, that's it man. It's like, it's, it's, they're just following us around. It's like, <sighs> it's like our own, like, personal crackhead for the podcast. <laughs> This week in review, we will be discussing the movies Norman and Cardboard Gangsters. In trending topic, we'll be doing a new little segment I came up with called You Should Be Watching This. And then in our main topic, we will be discussing Orson Welles' last film, F for Fake. So Austin, this week I've decided to grade the films on Orson Welles' performances. Now, how you feel like you want to interpret that, once again, is... See, I, I like the idea of we can just go for these abstract concepts and people can read I into them whatever that. they want. Yeah. Because it means less work for me. I have to think about <laughs> less of a logical bounds and I could just say anything and people will just and be it, like, oh, okay, that's what that means. Yeah, and it fits within your philosophical ideas anyway about how you think that review systems are bullshit. Exactly. So this, fits, this is perfect. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, um, so... So I went to see a movie called Norman, or to give it his full name, Norman, The Moderate Rise and Tragic Fall of a New York Fixer, is a movie starring Richard Gere and a really solid ensemble cast, which includes Michael Sheen, Steve Buscemi, Charlotte Gainsbourg, and Dan Stevens. It's written and directed by an Israeli filmmaker named Joseph, it's either Cedar or Kedar, I'm not really sure what pronunciation is, but I think also his, like... I think you probably pronounce his first name Yosef anyway, so I'm probably mm. pronouncing the whole name wrong. But um, but he's made four films, all of which I've never heard of. But uh, basically mm. what happened was um, uh, Bradley called me up and he was like, you know, I really fancy just going to a film that's not like got like the fate of the world or some like city being blown <laughs> up, you know, right. where like the people are just normal people and they have conversations with each other and there's a plot and, you know, the plot's propelled forward by drama and character. And I was like, yeah, no, that, 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 sounds, that sounds good. That sounds fun. <laughs> I, I, I feel somewhat starved for that. So, and, I, and I have to say, I feel like this movie just felt like that kind of breath of fresh air that I wanted. And, mm. I mean, it was just, um, it, it really didn't disappoint in that area. So anyway... So anyway, here's the plot. Richard Gere plays a kind of eccentric Jewish New Yorker who seems to spend all of his time trying to make connections and make friends with the right people in the hope of making big deals and sort of connecting this person to this person. And he, you know, he's, you know, as, as, as the sort of title says, he's kind of a fixer, or at least he, mm -hmm. in his mind, he wants to be a fixer. And right. it's the first part of it kind of plays almost a little bit like Martin Scorsese's King of Comedy, where you have this character who's a bit eccentric, a bit deluded, who's essentially going around and trying to weasel his way into the inner circles of sort of big name people. And then the okay. interesting thing is the film takes this kind of big turn in the second act that I was not at all expecting, because I actually didn't watch a trailer for this. It's one of the first times I've been to a film in a very long time that I didn't watch a trailer for and I kind of thought this was going to be the movie. I, I thought we were just going to see him go from place to place, and it was going to be one of those quirky character-type films where it's really just about the journey and the weirdest... And this movie ends up getting really plot-heavy and getting into a lot of kind of intrigue and sort of political machinations. And essentially what happens is he ends up befriending a... Through a sort of act of generosity, ends up befriending a very high-ranking Jewish politician who we jump forward in the second act to three years later, and he's become the prime minister of Israel, which suddenly puts this guy who everybody kind of thought of as this... It's interesting because they refer to him as... Well, you know, his name is Norman, but they often talk about the Normans of the world. So his name isn't just his own name, it's a concept. Mm. Um, and so you have this sort of... But because of, you know, this, this friendship he's made three years earlier, he's now sort of 
potentially in a position of huge power within the New York Jewish community. And, you know, and it sort of proceeds in a lot of interesting ways and doesn't really sort of go where you expect it to. And I, I can't really, I don't want to really, really want to say too much more than that, but um, it has some really great little clever directorial flourishes. It's interesting for a movie that you could imagine could have been shot in a really sort of straightforward, dramatic um, fashion. It's a movie with a lot of strange quirks to it and some really interesting little visual flares. So it does split screens and conversations in a way that I haven't seen done, you know, a lot, and which I thought was really fascinating with a kind of blended scenery together and locations together and has some odd sort of like freeze frames and, you know, some interesting little, you know, visual flourishes. And I yeah. thought it was really, really worthwhile. And it's like, I just think that it was exactly what I kind of needed at that given time. I think Richard Gere is great in it. And it's interesting in his old age, Richard Gere is kind of turning into a much more interesting actor than I ever really thought of him beforehand. Mm. Cause I don't know. Did you see a movie called, um, arbitrage, um, a couple of years back? You know, I didn't see it. No. And, and do you want to, and it's really good. I really like arbitrage, but yeah, but no, and I, I think, mm. I don't know. It's interesting. Cause Richard Gere has sort of said in interviews, he's like, he likes spending time with his daughter. He's really kind of almost a little bit semi-retired. So it's like if a film, like he'll only shoot a film if it's in New York, if it's not a big time commitment. And right. so it's kind of meant that he's been doing a lot of these kind of fairly small indie films where he likes the script and he'll kind of like, and he'll say, yeah, no, I'll do that. Um, and so he's been working a lot with Orrin Mooverman, who's also a producer on this film, who mm. again is someone who I quite like. So no, I think, um, I think he's... I think he's really, really good in a, in a way that I would not necessarily have expected because I don't really think of him as someone who turns in character roles. Yeah. But Are you thinking some award season love? I think him? it's too small. I think it would have to gather a lot of buzz. Um, and also, it's come out at this time of year. I just don't see it having the sort of staying power to do that. Um, mm. I would very much doubt it. Um, but mm. I, I definitely think it's really worth seeing. I think it was a, a great little, a great little film. I am going to give it Orson Welles in Chimes at Midnight. Okay, I've never even seen Chimes at Midnight. Well, then, you know, you, uh, you're completely ill-prepared to understand the rating system then, aren't you, Austin? <laughs> you should be more I'm of an sure. Orson Welles fan, and then you would understand my rating system. Apparently, apparently. All right, so the film that I saw in theaters this week was Cardboard Gangsters, directed by Mark O'Connor. He's an Irish filmmaker. Have you heard of him before, Kier? Uh No, I haven't. What, what else has he done? His his last two films were, uh, you know, small micro-budget films in Ireland, one called Stalker and one called King of the Travelers. And King of the Travelers was one that kind of had a little bit of notoriety around this part of the world. And, I'm guessing uh, it had to do with travelers? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's about like this boxing traveler dude that's kind of protecting his family's legacy and whatnot. Are you um, saying that's not but, just all travelers? Uh, just, you know, going in for stereotypes? They all, they all, um, but, they all. But this guy's the king. He's the, he's the king, the king. though. So he he's, the king. Yeah. So is he Brad Pitt and Snatched? Yeah, exactly. And snatched, that's exactly. Sorry, not snatched. Exactly, yeah. Uh, um, but yeah, so actually the guy that plays the lead in both of those movies, his name's John Connors, wrote the script for Cardboard Gangsters. So he wrote the story. Is he the future then, of the resistance? Uh, he is the future of the resistance, yeah. Um, but so... <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Skynet's coming, man. So what it does, it's good to know he's around. Uh, so John Connors is uh, a local Irish Dublin uh, actor and writer, and he actually wrote this story, and he plays the lead. The lead character's name is Jay, and Mark O'Connor adapted the story, and so it was kind of a co-writing uh, venture between the two of them. But anyway, it's a low-budget, independent Irish film about the local gang culture in Dublin. And I've actually been really fascinated since I moved to Dublin in learning about the local drug feuds and drug wars. A lot of people don't actually know outside of the local area, outside of Ireland, um, how, uh, let, let's say, how robust and how tumultuous the gang feuds have been in Dublin for the last, let's say, 20 or 30 years. There's an excellent book, if you're interested in reading it, anybody called Cocaine Wars by Mick McCaffrey, who's a journalist who details some of it. And this book basically um, is a, a small portrait of one particular area that is highly affected by, let's say, the lower socioeconomic uh, problems that are associated with this gang culture in this area called Darndale, which is a little community here in Dublin. And anyway, Jay and his friends 
are, you know, they're, they're friends from when they were little boys. And that's how the film opens. It opens with a really lovely little montage of them kind of walking through the fields and the forest here in Dublin and then kind of walking through the streets and not causing trouble, but just being boys, you know, learning about their bodies and exploring their space and kind of just fucking around with each other. And then it kind of fast forwards to them probably about, let's say, 15 years later where they're in their early 20s and they're low-level drug dealers. And then the inciting event, if you will, is when um, Jay, the main character, played by the future of the resistance, John Connors, his welfare gets cut off. And so he has to start drug dealing for real rather than just like selling a little pot here and there. So they start selling some brown and some other bigger things. And that you know, gets them in a sort of conflict with the, the bigger drug dealers in the area or drug dealers, singular, I should say, in the area. Now, the basic plot is nothing to write home about. It's nothing no one's ever heard before. But contextually, it's quite interesting because I don't think there are too many films about the Irish gangster scene or let's say the Dublin gangster scene. And I think more than anything, what this film is successful at is its tone, its pacing. The acting performances are stellar. And I am a fucking snob. You can ask here when it comes to acting. These acting performances were stellar I mean, for a low-budget film that is just using local actors, I was really, really impressed. So you're saying it's a case of execution over kind of like what's on what's what would be on paper with yes, it? Yes, 100%. And actually, they I, it was actually – I went to a screening that was a Q&A, and mm-hmm. that was one of the things they talked about afterwards that Mark O'Connor said that was what was so difficult about getting funding was he said on paper – He's like, people, you know, they want to see gangster films. They want to see Goodfellas. You know, they want to see the big things. You know, or if it's a gangster about the streets, it's like Boys in the Hood or Colors. And they're like, but who wants to see a film about Irish gangsters and then throw a few hundred grand at it? It's not that easy to to secure that just from what's on paper. Well, and it's it's interesting because I remember when I I saw Ned's um, where I was kind of like, this just felt like generic coming of age in a hard place story only mm. you're the only twist was hey it's in scotland you know and right. it was like you know so it's it can be tricky right. sometimes with these things i think cardboard gangsters blows ned's out of the water oh well, that's good yeah so um i'm gonna give it uh because my knowledge of orson wells is quite limited here so uh, of of the bits that i know of orson Welles, i'm gonna give it a war of the worlds which is a bit of a curveball because i know that was a radio broadcast but it's because it was effective and it caused a little bit of a panic in people and it was something that kind of came out of nowhere um so i'm gonna give it a war you of the worlds you can't fucking follow the rules ever can you you know you just <laughs> you've always got to find some weird way of like the amount of times where i've i've been saying to people like what your selections for the world cinema thing are and they'd be like wait that that's not from that country i'm like i know but it's austin he can't just follow the rules normally <laughs> okay so trending topic this week was uh a kind of random idea i had which i feel like i've given it too nice a name really what i sh- what i think we should be calling it is fuck you watch this thing because i feel mm. like it's us saying like to the other one hey why are you not watching this because fuck you that's why um yeah so, uh, so the idea is we're each going to pick one thing that we think the other person should definitely be watching because it's in their best interests, and if they don't, we'll come and kick them in the balls. Um, yeah. So um, I'm going to start it off because I basically started this segment for this for the simple reason that I wanted to Austin to watch this thing because I want to have discussions with him about it because he seems like the perfect person to talk about it, which is the new stars slash Amazon series, American Gods, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, for a man who has, you know, is, is well-versed in theology and philosophy and all sorts of crazy shit. Fuck you, Austin. Why are you not watching this show? <laughs> well, the reason is because I'm reading the book right now. Oh, fuck you. So, Randy, I but this am... isn't a fucking book podcast. We don't we don't we don't read books on this podcast. We watch fucking images on a screen. That's what we do. Okay, well then let me be more honest and maybe kind of move in the direction of it. Actually, I'm not reading the book. I'm listening to the book on audio. Uh, so does that Okay, I see. That, does that make you feel better? My name's Austin. <laughs> I wanted people to think I was smart cuz I was reading text on a page, but actually I'm too much of a pussy to do that. Hey, dude, I do both. I listen to audiobooks while I'm reading a book. So. Well, that just seems like a waste of time. No way. I can do both at the same time. But if, but you could, like, if you were listening to it, you could be doing other things while your hands were free. 
Yeah, and then I'm doing, and then I'm like fixing my car uh, with my other hand at the same time. And I'm, I'm reading on a Kindle. I've got a real paperback book in front of me, and I'm working See, on uh, what, my car. Dude, what you need to do then is you need to get your like your laptop out and then watch the sh- <laughs> have the show going while Damn it's it. happening You're as right. well. Okay, that's my test for this week. Anyway, no, um, I, I that's that's the reason. I I actually I'm really excited about it. Uh, first of all, because. The cast is amazing, um, but also because I'm I'm in the middle of the book and I cannot fucking wait actually to watch it. So anyway, the the for those who don't know, the concept of American Gods is basically uh, about it's sort of set in modern America, but essentially revolves around a, a whole bunch of ancient deities who have sort of been forgotten and kind of immigrated over to the United States with the sort of people who believed in them. And yeah. uh, they're sort of losing power through the kind of lack of belief. So they decide to mount a war against the new gods, which are, say, like the god of media, the god of technology. And um, they are gathering armies in order to uh, essentially have this kind of final showdown. Now, the TV show has uh, Ian McShane as Thor and so not Thor, uh, Odin, uh, and uh, revolves around his kind of relationship. Well, I mean, kind of revolves around his relationship with... Uh, mm-hmm. A character called um, fuck. What is his name? Shadow. So revolves around a character called Shadow Moon, who uh, we well, I suppose I shouldn't say because like it's obviously not been just sort of revealed yet in the TV show what he is, but um, essentially he's very important to the whole cause. But it has a stellar cast, which uh, includes Gillian Anderson as the god of media, and then also has um, Crispin Glover and Jeremy Davis is playing Jesus. But I mean, and I I love Ian McShane because Ian McShane knows how to fucking ham it up. Like he knows how to yes, ham it up has. at just the right level. And this mm-hmm. is like the perfect show, like for Ian McShane. But mm. um, I will say it also has these amazingly weird asides. So it starts off um, in the first episode with this kind of crazy Viking sequence where the Vikings come to the New World and are essentially. Um, one of them is, like, killed by, like, a thousand arrows that just come out of nowhere and just completely just take him down. Then it has, like, the goriest, craziest, like, Viking battle scene I've ever <laughs> seen, which is, like, blood spurting everywhere. And it's just, like, it's yeah. so, like, hyper-stylized and insane. Like, that's the thing. is like, I almost, I don't, it's, it's a really violent show, but I don't know how you could ever take the violence seriously because it's so mm. absurdist and hyper-stylized that it's kind of like, but it's, it's, it's gorgeous to watch. It's directed by um, David Slade, who is a director who I, I adore his film Hard Candy. And he's sort of been, he's basically after directing uh, the third Twilight film, he's kind of gone just sort of solidly into television now. And he uh, was Mm. sort of the main guy behind Hannibal and he's directed a lot of other TV pilots, but I think a really, really fantastic visualist who I'd, you know, really like to see return to film again. But, um, Mm. yeah, and then in the second episode, kicks off with this crazy-ass sequence where it's basically a bunch of slaves on a slave ship, and then you have Orlando Jones, who is an actor I didn't know even still existed, um, (laughs) pops up as the human embodiment of this kind of African myth of the sort of trickster spider Mm -hmm. god, and basically convinces the slaves to revolt with this crazy monologue, basically, where he explains, like, look... Ain't nothing good going to happen once you get off this ship. You might as well revolt. Y'all going to die, but you might as well revolt because what the fuck else do you have to look forward to? And at least you get mm. to take some of these motherfuckers with you, you know? <laughs> and it's like, but it's, it's, it's just got these amazing sequences in it. These just really strange, just visually surreal sequences, which are gorgeous to look at. A lot of them have very little context with the rest of the show. And that's the thing. It's a very odd show. It's very slow. Um, but it has these sequences which are just um, visually stunning and mm. kind of fun in a sort of crazy, weird, ambiguous fashion. And it's like it's got this great uh, sequence where like the Egyptian god of death uh, takes this woman after she's died, and all and it's like this never-ending fire escape which just leads up to the hereafter. And then uh, when they get to the top, he sort of pulls her heart out of her chest and weighs it against a feather. And it's just, it's, yeah. Mm. And I'm, that's the thing. is like, I'm watching it as a guy who's um, really fascinated on a visual level with it and really right. enjoying the, the filmmaking in it. But I, I don't know how much I'm getting out of it on the philosophical, theological basis. So it's like, I almost wish that I could have you sitting next to me while watching it so we could have, like, 
discussions about it while it was going on. So this is essentially yeah. why I came up with a theory with my with this segment. Fuck you, watch this thing because <laughs> you know because I, I I need someone to bounce some of this off. Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting you say that. One of the videos that I'm I'm hopefully working on with Wisecrack, you know, we talked about that company last week, is going to be about the philosophy of American gods. And ideally, if the show is as popular as they're hoping it'll be over the long run, then it'll be a series of videos that Wisecrack will put out that will cover all kinds of different angles, yeah. from, like, the history of the mythology, because so, so... uh McShane's character is Odin, but his name is Wednesday. Yeah. Right? And you don't find out until later that his name is Odin. But the reason is because the reason is because the word Wednesday actually is a contemporary adaptation of Woden's Day. And Woden is a name that was an adaptation of Odin. So people don't know that when we say Wednesday, we're actually saying Odin's Day. Mm-hmm. So that there is this influence of Norse mythology that cuts through and actually all of our days have uh, similar resonance, historical resonance with them. So it'll be interesting to look at that. And then you have um, that the leprechaun, right? Yeah. The leprechaun characters, like six foot fucking was whatever. Played by and in, Pablo Sh- um, Schreider. Is that his name? Pablo Schreider. Yeah, Schreider. Well, because he's actually he's actually Liev Schreider's um, brother, like half brother. Is he? I didn't know. Yeah, that. they're like half. Yeah, they're like half brothers. Because I knew him as um, the guy from. Um, I knew him as the guy from uh, originally from the who's in the second season of The Wire, and then he okay. plays porn stash Orange is the New Black on Orange yeah. is the New Black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's and the also is, in 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, directed by <laughs> Michael Bay. Michael Bay. So, I mean, the man's worked with the greats. <laughs> um, but he's a leprechaun, and most of us think of leprechauns as being like these tiny little guys that are guarding their pots of gold, right? These little miniature figures. But actually, historically, there is a legacy about where the leprechaun myth came from, and it has to do with this uh, myth about these giants. So the character of the leprechaun is actually not a miniature person, but he's actually kind of a, a rather tall and imposing figure. And yeah, there are certain stereotypes like like he's a drunkard, but he doesn't drink Guinness. He's drinking like what rum and coke or something like that. I can't remember. And and then Shadow gives him shit for it. I mean, that's in the book version. I don't know how much they talk about it in the in the series. He's but he's great, really, by the way. Like uh, like he is like one of the big highlights of the show. And he's I, he's one of my favorite characters in the book. Yeah. And I don't want to I don't want to say anything about. Um, I mean, I don't know. The, I mean, you're in story, Ireland, but... so I'm sure there's people over there who'd want to give him shit for his Irish accent. But I I I think right. he's I think he's great. And again. It's one of those shows where it's so heightened that I almost feel if you're mm. getting pissy about the accuracy of someone's Irish accent, then you're probably missing the point of the show to a certain extent. Yeah. Also, if, if for anyone who's really into some intense softcore uh, gay sex between uh, Middle Eastern men, this show is for you. It's uh, <laughs> it's it, it's 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 got a pretty it's got a pretty saucy sex scene in there between like two very bearded Middle Eastern men. So. Uh, oh. yeah. So Brokeback Desert Brokeback instead of Brokeback Deserts. Mountain. In New York, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So my my show – here's the thing. I'm really only watching – I'm catching up on Orange is the New Black. So that's one thing. I'm watching Better Call Saul, which I think is um, – I think it got a lot of hype for being a spinoff. And then I think it's kind of like people aren't talking about it as much yeah, anymore. Yeah, I, I we, think it's we, we decided to wait till the third season was over and then just kind of binge it So because we've seen okay. the first two seasons. I mean, you know – it's Albuquerque represent motherfuckers. So, I know, you know. I know. I know. I was actually gonna. I was gonna better. It was. It was between two shows: Better Call Saul and this other one. But I figured you were already up on Better Call Saul mm. because it's a good show and you pay attention to good shit. Um, but here's a show that's not really that good in the eyes of many people. But for some reason, I really love it, and I'll try to justify why I think you should give it a chance. Okay. It's called Flaked. Oh, uh, yes, I have not seen this. Yeah, so, and it yeah, stars so, Will Arnett. Yeah, it's kind of okay. like, it looks kind of like Californication light. Yes, and it is basically, I think I like it more so because I'm from Los Angeles yeah. and from that area. Even though, I, so I was born in L.A., grew up in Orange County, and then I lived in L.A. in multiple locations. Uh, like from the, the heart of the city in Koreatown to I lived in Hollywood to like Los Feliz, Silver Lake, and then to the Valley. Um but I grew up ultimately, like in my childhood, I grew up in a beach town, and I grew up going to the beach all the time. And so this film takes place in Venice, California, which is a, a, a sort of which beachy again doesn't town. help its Californication comparison. <laughs> no, no, which is a beachy town in Los Angeles, and so it fits real well with my LA vibe, but then also my Orange County beachy vibe. And so Will Arnett basically plays um, an alcoholic who 
is sort of like the king. He's like they call him the mayor of Venice okay. uh, because he's like the guy that everybody knows. But he's basically a man child. Okay. He's, he's kind of got that arrest that state of arrested development. Haha. <laughs> um, and it's like he never has actually kind of progressed out of this. I drink. I hang out with my friends. Um, I kind of lounge around town. Yeah, I've got a job. I, I work at like this stool shop where I, I sell like these handmade stools and shit like that. But you know, I'm not really kind of like buying into the corporate mentality of, of the LA vibe where you're supposed to be a banker or a financier yeah. or be so concerned about it. See, do you know what the really funny thing was? I watched, the, I, I remember watching the trailer ages ago and I've seen all the images and I think I just always assumed he was a screenwriter in the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, it doesn't fall into that trope. Yeah, but um, there's a lot of LA love, yeah. like a lot of a lot of like if you're from LA, especially if you spent time in LA, then you're like, oh, okay. Clearly, these people are just trying to tell you how cool Venice is. And to be honest, it does it does portray I, a pretty I, I mean, cool that, that, side of Venice. That is that is something that would convince me to watch it to a certain extent because I'm actually I I have a lot of affection for Venice. I like Venice quite a lot. Yeah, Venice is cool. It's yeah. one of those strange towns that has this weird mixture of like cool characters, like cool weird people, but it's also got um, a lot of interesting art, and it's got amazing scenery. I feel like, it's got cool I feel like you never go to Venice and you never come out without saying like, oh, that's something I hadn't seen before. Like that's like – whether <laughs> yes. it's like some cool art thing or somebody dressed really strange or it's uh, a crackhead trying to break into a subway. It's like there's always right. there's always something strange <laughs> that you see in Venice yeah. that you hadn't seen before. Yeah, but even when the crackhead is trying to break into the subway, you never personally feel threatened. Yeah. You're kind of like, uh, he's just like a dude that lives on the – beach he's just hungry man you know you're kind of like i get it you know whereas in downtown la you know you're worried about the crackhead trying to break into the subway yeah um but yeah so it's a little different it's a subway sandwich store obviously not like a train system or anything like that. yeah just for people listening yeah and and honestly venice is a great place i i think anyone who goes to visit la i mean you got to go visit venice of course you got to go to like the the spot on the beach where it's like this is the main spot where everyone's fucking crazy and there's street performers and shit. And this like is, that. this it, is it, that, it, this is that point crap. on the beach where this is that point, you know, and it's like, it's like you've seen it in a million like films as well. Cause like it, a million. Yeah. 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 So this is what people think of when they think of LA. They're like, Oh yeah, it's clearly Venice, but I will say this. So this film doesn't concentrate so much on the touristy sides, but it kind of gives you a nice, more intimate insider's perspective of what Venice in particular, this street called Abbott Kinney, which is the main kind of strip in Venice where everybody hangs out. It's super hipster, super cool. But you know, Will, our next character is in his mid to late thirties now, and he's no longer like a 20 something year old hipster. And so it kind of explores the themes of what happens when you are in that state of your life, but um, you're still living in this area, still living this type of lifestyle. But at the same time, it's also got some more serious themes. You know, he's basically, um, what we understand from the outset is that he's an alcoholic and he is in uh, a program, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so Alcoholics Anonymous program is actually a, ma a, a major um, kind of uh, through line through the entire thing because him and, him and all of his friends are involved in Alcoholics Anonymous. So he lives with his best friend. And, um, and this is, you know, season one, season two just came out and I just finished it actually. But, um, and he lives with his best friend and they're both in the program together and all of their friends are basically in, a, in the program or at least they know that they're in the program. And so everyone, you know, is, is kind of like trying to keep everybody accountable and keep them straight and stuff. So it deals with that element, which is, I think quite interesting. It gives it a seriousness to it. But the thing that's really the most serious is Will Arnett's backstory. Which is that the reason that he joined Alcoholics Anonymous is that he, the story is that when he was younger, he um, was in a drinking and driving accident and he killed uh, a young man. And um, and that's what actually brought him to Venice however many years ago and, and kind of compelled him to get involved in the program. And... Um, and then there are some different turns and twists and things like that, but uh, I think it's... It's not like – I've read some reviews of it. I remember when the first season came out that they were like, oh, this – it's you know kind of generic and it tells uh, – this this series basically just shows us why the kind of man-child character isn't compelling anymore and how we're burnt out on that. And I do get that. There is some palate fatigue with this type of story. But I think that Will Arnett is such a captivating character on screen 
And I think that his performance is so underrated. It's so subtle and so simple. Well, I think I do think that I think it makes moment, up for a lot of the weaknesses. I think it's a bad time, goodwill wise, to be putting out a show about uh, middle aged men with existential crises. I think it's just kind of, especially middle aged white men. I think exactly. I think I think people it's are just people are kind of not very receptive to that at the moment. Um, I agree. But no, I mean the Venice angle, the the alcoholic angle. Those are all things that kind of tip my interest ladies and gentlemen by way of introduction this is a film about trickery and fraud about lies you don't talk about napoleon or julius caesar you're talking about elmir 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 who is elmir that question has yet to be answered with any real precision can i kiss you too <laughs> anybody wants to eat in the world of the jet setters among us beautiful people, everybody knows Elmir. But Elmir what? He has about 60 times the same name. De Hori? He's called his name Hori, Uri, Bori, Suri, Kori, Bari, Dori, all the... Papa. With U-R-Y, 60 names. His real name was Elmir Ferenc Huffman. Then 60 personalities, as much lies and as much real. Well, sounds very <laughs> Jesuitic. <laughs> Yes, is his world is a world of make believe. I'm not an actor. Not an actor? Elmir. I'm not an actor. I am not a professional actor. He's a leading actor in this movie. His profession is true as painting, painting fakes. Among all fakers, Elmir is number two. Once I saw a man from Ibiza writing a book on fake who came to see me to Paris. He said, I heard you are the first man who bought a, an Elmir. That man's name was... Clifford Irving. All right, sweet. So for the main segment this week, we're going to be talking about Orson Welles' final major film called F for Fake, which is a sort of documentary, sort of visual essay on the nature of art and trickery. And it basically follows... I mean, how would you describe this, Kier? It basically, it, it's, it starts off one way, where Orson Welles makes a promise. And he says, I promise that for the next 60 minutes, everything that I tell you is going to be true. And he says that on two different occasions. I promise that in the next hour, everything that we say is absolutely true. And he sets it up so that he can give a sort of biographical explanation of this art forger who kind of bounced around um, in, uh, where was he, in Ibiza uh, while he was forging all of these like art programs or art art paintings and shit like that. Um, and then, of course, talking about cut within that, uh, a book that was based on this art forger by a guy named Clifford Irving. Well, he was writing who, a book. I don't know if he ever finished it, but he was supposed to be writing a book on the art forger. Did he finish the book? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I think so, yeah, book, so he wrote this book on this art forger, but then it turns yeah. out that he himself was responsible for writing a fraudulent biography of Howard right. Hughes. But yeah, but Howard Hughes, who had been in exile for years, had to come out of had to come out of uh, a self-imposed um, kind of uh, isolation in order to refute the validity of this autobiography. Because his whole theory right. behind this is, well, we'll just put this out. And what, what's Howard Hughes going to like come out and say it's not real? No, you know, and if, if we can, <laughs> we'll just say, well, he, um, well, you know, he would say that because he's fucking crazy. You know, it's, it's right. you know. Right. So, yeah, so he was, so it's essentially a film about con artists. Um, yeah, it's a film about trickery. It's a film about about magic and about illusion and what is the role of the artist. And, and then and Orson Welles is quite specific about that too. And then, and then I will just say this, that um, a, there's a twist about an hour and 10 minutes in, which is about 60 minutes, maybe an hour, seven minutes in, about 60 minutes after Orson Welles says, for the next 60 minutes or for the next hour, yeah. I'm going to be telling you the truth. And then at that point, it sort of becomes this play on what is true, what is not true. And it's this very interesting documentary slash visual essay on the nature of art, illusion, truth, beauty, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think, I think the thing that's interesting about the film is it's, as a whole, it's a conceptual piece. It's a, it's, I mean, it's, yes. you're right. I think it is. It's a video essay. It's, a, it's essentially discussing the notion of what constitutes art, what constitutes critique, what constitutes appreciation, and, you know, what value things have. And essentially, I mean, the interesting thing is Orson Welles draws the line between these fakers and includes himself in it. He tells a story about how, as a young man, 
He was in Ireland and um, ended up sort of penniless and managed to talk mm. his way into being an actor on the stage by claiming to have been in all of these Broadway productions. Right. Then, right. you know, he links it to his own kind of... Uh, if only it were that easy nowadays. Yeah. I would love to just go down to the local Lub- Dublin Playhouse and be like, dude, I'm like this big indie star back in America. Uh, you should give me a, an audition. The fucking internet, <laughs> man. Um, but, but, and then he... Um, but then he then... Uh, he then ends up talking too about the whole experience with war of the world. Now I, I will say the interesting thing here is that there has actually been quite a bit of study into this and there's mm. a very wide held belief that um, people saying that the War of the Worlds broadcast called, caused panic is itself a bit of a fakery and forgery and more mm. of a publicity stunt than anything that actually happened. Um, because there's a lot of research done into what actually happened at that time period, charting back through sort of uh, police reports and what. And there's very little evidence to show that there ever was a widespread panic caused by that radio broadcast. But instead, mm. it was kind of it was publicized that it had as a way of kind of drumming up excitement about the, um, about the, uh, about the broadcast. So, and as a publicity stunt. So in in actual fact, it's Mm. interesting because even metatextually within the film, it's kind of discussing a form of fakery in and of itself without even sort of copying to that fakery, which is kind of fascinating. Well, and and it's so, so what you've just said is so Orson Welles basically admits at the outset that he was a faker Mm. and that's how his career started by faking, by by dramatizing a story about himself um, that was maybe inflated. Yeah. And then the War of the Will, the War of the Worlds, the thing that kind of one of the maybe the earliest things that he's most known for, even though he obviously did a lot of theater stuff, um, was a, a quote unquote hoax. Yeah. Right. That it was a fake. And so he's already setting himself up as a trickster. Yeah. Right. And, and that's what's really interesting is, is he already sets up this idea that the artist is and I think Orson Welles saw himself as an artist more than anything else in that he just expressed his artistic yeah. medium as an actor as a filmmaker as well, a writer Well must be said too a... this was not Orson Welles's traditional form either Orson Welles traditionally made fiction you know he made he made sort of straightforward fiction he didn't really make documentaries you know or video right. essays this isn't what Orson Welles is kind of known for as a filmmaker so it's even a kind of departure for him and this is the most conceptual thing he's ever he ever sort of made in his career and Mm. the thing that's kind of fascinating again is that this is kind of goes to why orson welles is such a a pure filmmaker in so many ways is essentially Mm. all that footage that we're cutting around for in the first part of it an awful lot of that is footage that was shot for a documentary now a fairly traditional documentary uh about this art forger now orson welles has taken that footage and he's recontextualized it and given it um, this sort of place in this overall conceptual piece about the notion of fakery and the meaning of art. But essentially what the footage is originally shot for is to make a very straightforward documentary about, here's this guy, he's an art forger, let's hear him talk about being an art forger. But Orson right. Welles sees something beyond that, and that's what makes Orson Welles fascinating as a filmmaker, because mm. he saw that there was something greater to this than just simply saying, this is the story of an art forger. He said, let's discuss about the notion of forgery and what constitutes forgery, and actually, and of course this is the really interesting central thesis of the, of the film in the end, what stops this person from being an artist in their own right is it purely the critique and the value that we put on the originals or is it actually or is there any valid reason to say that this person is an is is not just simply also uh a great at achieving art in his own right as well yeah because if this guy i i can't i mean i can't remember how you say his last name but it's dory Dory, Dory, um, Elmer Dory is what his name is. But anyway, if he can forge a Picasso that can fool even the greatest of Picasso art critics in the world, is not Dory a great artist? Or if he can forge uh, some sort of impressionist painting, a Monet, is he not then a great impressionist artist? And I love that you say that because to me, you're absolutely right. My favorite quote in the entire film is actually a quote by Pablo Picasso. And they recount this story where these guys uh, show Picasso paintings and they say, Picasso, this is your painting. And, or, or what do you think of this painting? Uh, is it yours or is it a forgery? And Picasso says, ah, it's junk. It's a forgery. And he goes through like seven of them. And he finally lands on one that 
Actually, Picasso painted himself, and he says, it's junk, it's a forgery. And the guy says, Pablo, I saw you paint that less than just a few hours ago. Like, I saw you paint that, and then I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something that Picasso says where it's basically, yeah, but even I can paint a great forgery of a Picasso. And that is what is amazing. So that is, to me, that is so interesting, because what does it mean to be... Uh, a Picasso painting or to be a Monet? Is it just that that stamp of authenticity has been given to it by the external uh, awarding bodies? Or what does it mean? What is what is the true authentic? Well, here's, here's the interesting question, too. Okay, so, um, and I think this actually very much relates to what we were discussing last week with um, Room uh, 237. And actually, interestingly enough, because we had a brief conversation a couple of episodes back, I can't remember if we cut it out of the podcast or not, but we had a brief discussion about um, the whole uh, conspiracy theory about Shakespeare not writing his own mm. plays. And right. the the interesting point is the amount, and the thing that the film brings up is this idea that we hold the artist as this great deified figure. But of course, there's a really fascinating, very poetic moment where Orson Welles is standing looking at this great cathedral, which of course we have no idea who the artist is or what, mm. um, or but we can still look at this artwork. Um, this great achievement of human engineering and artistic design and say this is something breathtaking and amazing. So the piece itself is what matters, not the artist. So in theory, if you say, okay, so say you take like Starry Night. Somebody creates a perfect forgery of that. If you are looking at that piece and you know nothing and, you know, you, you take away any context of knowing it's a forgery, what difference does it make in the end that it's a forgery? Because you're still mm. getting the same appreciation because it's created in exactly the same format. What is the, I don't know, uh, je ne sais quoi or whatever that mm. stops that from having the same validity to your eyes, to your expression of knowing of, you know, of, of that piece that would be different than if you were watching the original? And is, is that awareness of who the artist is, does that somehow change the dimensions, the paint, what exists on it? And this is, right. this is the other thing. It's one of the reasons why I actually defend the Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho because as much as that film is not a good film it's interesting in the sense of saying is film just simply a set of camera angles and camera movement and framing and sound and music can you simply substitute and recreate all of those things and create the same impact you did with the original what is the essence of film and that is what I think in such a fascinating way Wells is doing with this film is he is saying what is the essence of art and what is the value of art criticism and mm. yeah and i think that's interesting especially in the age of digital reproduction of art so you take that starry night and you put it into a textbook in an art history class or you put it uh onto some sort of you know, those sheets that you can buy at the museum that are like the picture of the painting and then you can take that home and you can put it on your own frame and you can be like, ah, oh, when I was at this location, I saw this original painting and then here's a little reproduction of it that I bought. What is it about that reproduction that makes it different from the original? Is it because you don't get to see the paint strokes and you don't get to see it in the gallery with the people or you don't get to actually smell whatever the room is like or whatever, like Robin Williams says in Goodwill yeah. Hunting, right? Like, ah, you know, you can talk about Michelangelo's uh, Sistine Chapel, but you've never smelled the smell of the Sistine Chapel being in there. Is there something interesting about the art in its I, quote, I will unquote, say that original about, form and in its reproduction? I will say that about um, Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock is a... Uh, often uh, as an artist that people dismiss very simply a lot of the time because they say, oh, it's just a bunch of splashes and drips on a canvas. Mm -hmm. But if you actually stand and look at a Jackson Pollock painting, if you're there in person and you're looking at it, then it's there is something really breathtaking about the scale of it and the pattern and the mood mm -hmm. and the feel of it. Now, it's not, I'm not by any means an art critic by any, so I, I couldn't express to you necessarily why it's fascinating on technical bounds or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, or like historically and But I know like that, that when right. I look at it, there is something that's very beautiful about the way it's put together. And it's not something mm -hmm. that a kid could just do. There is a beauty in its chaos, but also in mm -hmm. its design as well. And so, yeah. and again, I, I started making the point and forgot about it. Um, but when I was talking, when we were talking about the, the whole conspiracy of William Shakespeare, uh, whether William Shakespeare wrote his own plays or anything like that, the really fraudulent concept to me in that is 
say Shakespeare didn't write his plays. Who the fuck cares? It doesn't actually mm. stop the plays from existing. Shakespeare as a person is actually fairly immaterial to the works that he produced. Mm. Shakespeare is a concept now. He's not really a man. So mm. what difference does it make if he did or didn't? Now, incidentally, I don't believe that there's any validity in the conspiracy that he didn't write the plays. But the point is that actually it's beside the point. And I yeah, actually like think- ultimately, if someone put a gun to your head, you'd be like, you know what? It, it's, it's, I don't really care. I don't yeah. ultimately care. Yeah. And that's the thing is even – and I think that's actually the – which is fascinating because, of course, it's Wells' last film – is that this is kind of the point Wells is almost making, is that the artist is actually completely pointless, and that mm. is the artwork that matters. And he's doing it through expressing the notion of, if you're looking at a forgery that looks 100% real and still gives you the same emotional reaction and the same look and feel and mood of it, then what difference does it make if it was painted by the actual artist or not? Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. So, okay, you had seen this previously. I, I watched it in film school. That's what I was going to yeah. ask. I was going to say, this seems like a film school like must And I, I watched it in film school, and I think I liked it, and I found it kind of intriguing. On this one, I felt like I was much more paying attention and allowed to get... Because it wasn't, it wasn't... I suppose it was technically homework, but it wasn't homework in the same way that it felt when I was doing it for film school. And right. I also, I have a greater... Under, I have a better understanding of Wells as a filmmaker now than I did then as well. Mm. And so... And it's it's just fascinating how much Wells is really ahead of the game because Wells is essentially employing a lot of techniques that we kind of now think of as the kind of MTV style of editing. Yeah, so let's say this film was made in 1974 mm-hmm. originally. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so that's what we're talking about. That's the time period we're talking about, early 70s. Yeah. So go ahead. Um, and it has a lot of these sort of quick cuts. There's a lot of contextualized you know, imagery, you know, he brings up a lot of sort of interesting little gags. He uses um, sort of visual gags. He uses a lot of um, uh, reappropriated um, sort of film stock. So first is when he's talking about the whole thing with War of the Worlds, he's actually using footage from, I believe, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which was a, okay. a film I watched with my dad when I was a kid, uh, where they okay. create a special ray gun that um, essentially causes the Flying Saucers to lose control and crash into things. Um <laughs> Okay. But um, but yeah, and you know, and it it is a film that in like at least the first hour of it feels very much cobbled together from lots of imagery, and they are working their asses off to keep that Im- imagery dynamic, interesting, strange. I mean, they love fucking freeze frames in this in this, and but mm-hmm. it's it's interesting because it feels to me like it's taken a real. It's taken a lot of inspiration from the new wave in many ways um, with the editing mm. style. And it's interesting because I, I, you know, there's a quote that always sticks in my mind and I don't know. It's one of those ones I heard someone say, and I've never actually checked to see whether Godard actually said this or this, if this was just something somebody told me. But um, there's a quote. If it is Godard, then it's a good quote. Um, it, and it is that every, every shot is the truth and every cut is the lie. And that's the idea, is that Wells is so molding this kind of crazy scattergun reality while he's, mm. uh, while he's chopping all of these images together and compressing it and sort of drawing these parallels. And, but also at the same time, having so much fun with it. So it's sort of like, it, it'll suddenly cut to him, like explaining things while having dinner and then suddenly stopping to talk to the waiter or like, <laughs> or like sort of like, right. you know, he sort of inserts himself into the footage and then sort of suddenly, but you realize at the same time, he wasn't the guy getting that original documentary footage of those guys I mean that's entirely separate he wasn't that wasn't footage he shot so it's this Mm. weird way where he molds himself into the film in this way that feels entirely organic even though it wasn't him shooting that part of it yeah and and can I just say as one who admittedly has not seen enough Wells films to um to really be some sort of connoisseur but he is such a captivating oh, he screen is, presence. Yeah. He is like one of the most charming. That little side smirk that he has, he is so charming and so captivating. You almost feel like if he were not as chubby as he was in his later life, that he would have been, that people would talk of him as like the Cary Grant type of leading man. Like he has that type of charisma. Well, his, his voice like- is just so captivating. It's like, oh, you dude. can, because of course the funny thing is that, um, uh, is that Brain from P- Pinky and the Brain? His voice is basically an impersonation of Orson Welles. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I did not know that. But yeah, but no, he's got this just incredibly deep, unique voice that's just so yeah. kind of like it's just so engaging to listen to, and you're like, well, and yeah, in those in those scenes when he's at dinner or when he's in the cocktail party, it almost is shot as though everybody is around him. Mm-hmm. He is the focal point. Now I know obviously that's the way that the camera is angled, but it is interesting that it's almost like you feel like when he's in a room, he's the one that is garnering the well, attention. Well, it's also it's fascinating too to, to me whatever. because you watch something like Chimes at Midnight, which is essentially. Um, Orson Welles compressing and doing all of the kind of King's plays, like the Henrys together, and he plays Falstaff in it. Um, And, you know, listening to Welles do Shakespeare is just really, really wonderful. And I I think, and he, when he shoots Shakespeare, because he did a couple, he also did Othello, and he did one other one that I'm forgetting. But um, he met, oh, he did Macbeth. But he manages to shoot Shakespeare in this really... Um, vital and very um, engaging and really kinetic way. Whereas, like, you watch someone like Olivier do Shakespeare, it's really staid and stale, and I don't think it's aged very well. Like, I don't think mm. Olivier's Hamlet is a very engaging Hamlet. That's the thing, is Wells has this great um, mm. energy that he invests things with. And one of the reasons I love Citizen Kane, one of the reasons that I love Citizen Kane is Citizen Kane is an energetic film, you know, and it's it's really creative in its, in its visual storytelling. And Wells was clearly really interested in film technique and experiment it's like you know you watch the opening scene of touch of evil with that just really long take that long essentially take, yeah. sets up the entire film in five minutes in just one camera shot and it's yep. you know and and that's the thing that wells was always fascinated by was experimenting with film form and that's what f for fake is f for fake is a long mm. film form experimentation as a sort of video essay on the nature of art and actually because here's the interesting thing too is then you get into so you you have this first half, which is very much which revolves around um, uh, fuck. How do you say his name again? I think it's Dory. Dory Elmer. Yeah, this Elmer Dory. Forger. Yeah. You have then talking about Clifford Irving, uh, the um, the the writer who creates the fi- the fake biography. You have Wells discussing himself somewhat as a forgery, as a persona, and I think that's the interesting thing is it's essentially Wells to a certain extent also wrestling with his own. Um, image as the persona of Orson Welles versus the reality mm. of the man. And of course, at this point, Welles has sort of exiled himself from Hollywood and has kind of said, I'm done with Hollywood. I'm only going to make films in Europe. And, you know, uh, and basically, um, so he's kind of wrestling with that. And then suddenly, as you said, we end up going into this story of, again, forgery that turns out to be a forgery in and of itself, which, by the way, uh, mm-hmm. was co written by. The woman in it, uh, whose name is Oja Kadar, who yep. Wells was incidentally at the time uh, having a thing with. And you kind no. of feel like Wells <laughs> wants you to know he's having a thing with this woman. <laughs> yeah, because she's banging hot, yeah, right? <laughs> but I mean, and her whole kind of, um, and the, that sort of sequence at the beginning um, where all the men are kind of looking at her is kind of a little bit of, in her mind at least, is supposed to be a kind of like... Uh, uh, a sort of uh, indictment of the male gaze, um, and mm. the, sort of the whole film is somewhat kind of like see she, as at least as her interpretation is an indictment of the male gaze. I'm not totally sure I buy that because um, right. I don't really see how it's like showing the male gaze in any way kind of indicts it. It just you know, especially if you are essentially acting on the male gaze as a filmmaker. But anyway, point is um, the. Uh, Point is, you then move into this story, which is really cleverly done, with these still images of Picasso and this kind of, like, um, moving Venetian blind. And so it's a kind of practical setup where they're using a Venetian blind that's real and uh, and these sort of blown up uh, still photographs of Picasso and sort of and acting as if they're real and then having her kind Mm. of walk by the window and showing kind of Picasso's obsession with this woman. Um, And then... uh, how she then tricks, she again gets him to paint the, well, he basically asks that he, if he can paint her, she says he can on the condition that he then, she then has the paintings at the end of it. Um, and then the idea is that she then puts on this show at, um, in Paris with these artworks, which Picasso is really pissed off about comes to Paris. And then it turns out that all of these artworks are actually fake Picassos done by her father, who's a supposed famous Hungarian forger. Um, 
At which point, uh, but all of the art critics are like, wow, this is amazing. This is great. A new Picasso movement. Picasso is obviously right. pissed because he's like, these aren't my fucking paintings. And then the forger goes, ah, yes, but you see, I have created an entire Picasso movement from scratch and it fooled everyone. So again, we're kind of getting into this notion of... Uh, is what constitutes reality in all of this. If somebody takes the style of Picasso and reinvents it and brings it forward, um, is it still forgery? You can say, you say is it a, a, a reappropriation of the style? What right does an artist have to hold sway over one style, one form of you know, painting or filmmaking or writing or anything. Hmm. And then you, cause essentially all art is built off of, um, off of repetition and, um, and, um, copying and i think that's again that's an interesting point that the film brings up is the idea that art progresses through people copying each other so to a certain extent if you create new works out of somebody's old ones then uh and even if it's got that per you know in this case it's obviously has this person's name on it is this still not its own art in its own valid way uh so yeah so it's 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 and then of course wells at the end of this reveals that this story has been a complete forgery that this is not true right and that he's uh and that they've made up the last uh like 20 minutes of the film um you know and i and i i think you know again it's 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 interesting because he's playing with the form of filmmaking you know so you go mm. from this kind of crazy hyperactive edited um MTV style kind of uh, documentary mm. to this kind of really almost abstract art film um, and you know and, and kind of then I don't know I'm, I'm losing my track I'm getting getting sort of like but my point no, is but yeah but we're, we're I think I think what you're saying is is really interesting because that is the sort of through line conceptually yeah. of what's going on but it's done in such a way that it doesn't seem like an academic exercise. No, definitely. It's right? really fun to it's, watch. It's, it's so much fun to watch. And, you know, there's that bit at the beginning where Orson Welles is kind of doing magic tricks with the little boy. When he was a genuine boy. real magic enthusiast. Like, during oh, World he? War II, um, they had this thing called the Hollywood Canteen, um, where okay. they uh, where essentially all these movie stars would entertain the troops. It was a big thing. was that all of that... Yeah. Uh, well, in Hollywood, it was expected that you would go volunteer at the Hollywood Canteen. And Orson Welles basically put on these big magic shows for the troops. And he, oh. and at one point, he was talking that he was going to transition out of filmmaking and just become a, mu- uh, a magician. And at the time, he was married to Rita Hayworth. And so she was – and Rita Hayworth didn't really like acting. So she, the idea was that she, that him and her were going to go become like a sort of magic double act. Um, she was, he was going to be the magician. She was going to be his assistant. They were going to go tour the country as a sort of magic act. And, um, basically she couldn't get out of her contract. No shit. That's really interesting. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. And, and I think that that makes total sense because it's almost as though what, what Wells is saying is that the artist is an illusionist. Let's talk about forgery. There's another interesting, uh, there's an, uh, another interesting um, level that you can go with with Rita Hayworth. Because Rita Hayworth was a Hispanic woman who basically passed as white. And so people, uh, mm. so her entire career is owed to the fact that people never realized she was Hispanic. Um, mm. So, uh, but I can't remember what the film is. There's a film where she plays a Hispanic woman where she's in the lead. And, of course, the funny thing is that if she had actually been a Hispanic actress, she never would have gotten that part. Because actual black or Hispanics never got leading roles. They played supporting roles. If it was like, so, for instance, Orson Welles, when he's in Othello, he's playing Othello in blackface. So, it's kind of like, so, it's, it's again, it's that weird, those weird levels that you go to where, you know, Rita Hayworth was so convincing as a white woman that she was allowed to play a Hispanic woman in brownface. To a certain extent, Wells, at the end of this, in this film, to me, feels like he's somewhat trying to come to terms with the persona of Wells. And I think that's why he talks about himself quite a bit in it, too, is he's coming to terms with the persona of Wells and the reality of Wells. And Wells was a guy who he had a lot of struggles. Like he, I mean, there's that famous, there's the famous footage you can see of the outtakes of him on that wine uh, commercial where he's completely pissed and can't say his lines. And, <laughs> right. you know, and I think people like to view that and laugh at it. I, I, I think there's something very sad about it because it's just like, mm. he's, 
a man that really stopped caring at a certain point. And you know, and you look I actually wondered that. How did he die? Cuz he died a little bit prematurely, didn't he? Mm, like th- maybe he was in his early 70s. Uh, oh, he died yeah, he I was think 70. probably from you mean he was a very very fat man by the end of his that's life. That's what I was well. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Um, I kind of and you see he was, this, he died I mean he was, he 70, died, he was 70 when he years, died. Um, yeah, which is relatively young. And he was overweight. He died of a heart attack. And so I wondered watching this, it seems that he was a bit of a wine drinker, mm-hmm. bit of a partier, not in the sense of like, I don't know if he was like doing hardcore drugs that would have caused a heart attack. But, you know, it seemed that he definitely indulged in the things of life. And a lot of times when we indulge, and I know this as someone who has experienced lots of indulgence, a lot of times there's a sense in which we're trying to stimulate that dopamine rush mm-hmm. that maybe we're not getting from something else. Or we're trying to make up for something that we're not getting in other aspects of our lives. And so we need that quick jolt wherever we can get it, you know? And so it seems like that I don't – I completely agree with you. It seems that there is a tragedy in the life of Orson Welles, the, the, the I, the I, not the Welles, the persona – the I that he was, that his own experience of himself and his own experience of the world was quite a tragic experience. And I think maybe he felt like a fraud. And even though he has that charming, quirky smile that, yes, I'm an illusionist and this is what we all do, I think you're right that what that can cause a lot of times is a bit of existential crisis. When it's hard not to feel like, to a certain extent, this film is about Orson Welles as much as it's about the... Mm. Because, I mean, he puts himself so front and center. It's about him exploring this is about him coming to understand this and so when he's talking about the notion of the cathedral he's not just simply saying it in voiceover it's him looking at the cathedral it's him pondering this Mm. as he's looking at the cathedral so you kind of feel like so it's hard not to take that 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 visual um as a examination of him also trying to understand his own place next to his own art because i mean the problem is essentially is this a little bit like what I say with you know filmmakers who make a masterpiece. Like Wells made what is generally thought to be one of, if not the greatest American film ever made, which is Citizen Kane. Right. And I mean, whether you want to believe in the notion of there being possible to say a film is the greatest, I mean, it's a fraudulent concept to begin with. But Citizen Kane is a tremendous movie. It's a it's it's a brilliant film and it is a masterpiece. Um, I I adore Citizen Kane. And I think it is hard not – I don't think Wells ever made anything that could measure up to Citizen Kane. Now, that doesn't mean to say Wells didn't make a lot of good movies because he did. And unfortunately, Wells also had to struggle with the fact that a lot of his films got butchered. Like The Magnificent Ambersons has never been released in its proper format. But mm. – you know, Magnificent Amberson's still a pretty good film. You know, I mean, something like um, something like Touch of Evil, again, is a great thriller. Like, when Wells wanted to make something, he usually did a pretty damn good job of it. But there is nothing that is the unassailable masterpiece that is Citizen Kane because it's so epic and all-encompassing and wonderful and huge. And even, like, in this film, he can't help but name-check Citizen Kane because they're talking about how Hughes at one point was kind of the model for Kane, and then it changed over to William Randolph Hearst. And I've actually never heard that before, so kind Hmm. of part of me wonders if there could be a metatextual fakery going on within that as well, because as far as I was aware, it was Hmm. always supposed to be William Randolph Hearst, because uh, because Wells had it in for William Randolph Hearst. But, (laughs) you know, so I I don't know on that level, even if the film is somewhat creating a fakery Hmm. for the purpose of creating a narrative through line in it. But... I think, again, it, the, the, the levels to which this film is about Wells reconciling his own place in the world and his own connection to his own art, I think, is also really fascinating. I don't, mm. I don't, know, if, I don't know if you're – I mean, obviously, you're not someone who's as versed in Wells as, say, I am. So right. it, clearly it works for you even beyond that. But I, yeah. I, I find that point of it really fascinating. I think that's interesting. It makes me – so there are certain films that make me want to go do more research, right? And this is one of those films. It makes me want to go watch everything he's ever done, you know? It makes me want to go back and re I saw Citizen Kane when I was like 17 when my dad and stepmom sat me down and said – because I think that was like one of, one of the lists came out that was like Citizen Kane is the greatest yeah. movie ever made. And my dad and stepmom were like, Austin, you need to watch this movie. So we watched it and I – you know, I, I – didn't really appreciate it and um and since then i've never actually sat down and seen the whole movie i've seen bits of it and you know i've watched video essays that have talked about it and so i understand you know certain things but i haven't actually watched the movie it makes me want to go back and start with citizen kane and then even watch movies that he just acted in like was it the third man third man yeah he kind of 
Yeah, it makes me even want to watch everything that he's ever yeah. been a part of because there is something really magnetic about him as a character. Oh, yeah. And, well, I mean, the third and, and man, he's me, in about, yeah. like, ten minutes of that film. Like, and he, right, just the end, he, right? Like, the reveal. Uh, of, he's in kind of, he comes in kind of at the beginning of the third act and then there's a kind okay. of, um, and then he kind of comes in at the at the very end. But yeah, and I know that I know the reveal at the end where it's like that moody lighting, yeah. and it's like who who is this mystery figure? And then he shows up, and he's got that charming fucking face again. Like I've seen again a dozen visual or video essays on that film and on Wells and on uh, what was going on there. So it's one of those films. The F for Fake is one of those films that really it stimulates me to want to to learn more and experience more and and think about art more and. And then even to do some self-examination, because obviously I enjoy the conceptual, the conceptual exploration of what it means to be authentic. And authenticity is one of those things that is so important to me, not just in my daily life. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not just in my my artistic output and whatever it is. And I include even my academic work in that, but also in my daily life. And so this film, because it explores that and plays with that, I think it's it's a it's a snapshot. But I think, and this is when when they're most successful uh, at exploring universal themes, is when an art piece isn't trying to be universal at first, but it's basically doing an, an up close examination, and then because of that, it it kind of like hints at universal themes, and that's what I think this film is. The important distinction to make when you're talking about the genuine quality of a painting is not so much whether it's a real painting or a fake. It's whether it's a good fake or a bad fake. Okay, well, I'm really glad that uh, Austin uh, gave us F for Fake. Because I, I haven't watched it in a long time, and I think it, I was really due for a rewatch of this. So it was uh, I was really pleased to watch it again um, and uh, really enjoyed the experience. So Success! Success, it finally happened. <laughs> finally, Austin picked something I liked, you know. Uh, but I'm sure it will all come crashing down soon enough. But um, I plan on it. But anyway, uh, so next week uh, we have our first round, our first battle of World War. War film. Mm. Uh, so opening shots will be fired, and uh, Austin and I have sent our first choices to each other in Word documents, which we will now open so that there is no... So it is completely at random. We have no idea what the other one will be playing, so I can finally reveal that Austin has gone for his China choice, Rumble in the Bronx. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. motherfucker. I'm always, I'm always gonna, up for a bit of Jackie Chan. I'm gonna kung fu all over your shit. Okay, okay. So Austin, interesting love. I think uh, I think there's some there's some odd parallels in what I've what I've picked, Austin. So what have I picked? Well, I, I'm curious to see what the parallels are. You chose Goon, a <laughs> hockey film. It's a film about fighting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, I actually I saw Goon. God, and it must have been in 2012, yeah. and uh, I was delightfully surprised yeah. when I saw it. I, I thought it was just going to be like some bullshit, you know, Jay Baruchel's in it, and he's talking about like dick jokes and stuff like that, and so I was like, oh God, this is going to be like some lame Judd Apatow thing, and I was delightfully surprised back then, so I'm excited to kind of rewatch it. So it was, so we are pitting China against Canada. It's battle one of World War film. All right, uh, so uh, in the meantime, uh, I have recently put a trailer up for my short film, Duchess, so you should check it out. Uh, you can see it on my Vimeo account, uh, Kiersey, you can also see it on my website, kiersiewit.com. Um, and uh, check out my Instagram for pictures of attractive women, um, which have nothing to holding, do with my holding life. Holding knives and weird yeah, beer bottles which, and taking shits on toilets. Which have nothing no, nothing to do with my real <laughs> life whatsoever. Um, Don't lie. We know you are a crazy-ass motherfucker. You crazy, uh, son. Yeah. No, I spent, um, well, let me put it this way. I, I'm so crazy. I spent the weekend in rugby with Alex's uncle and aunt um, hanging out with their five border collies. That is how crazy a life is. And I'm by living. in rugby, he doesn't mean in a rugby No, pitch. in the town he rugby. Means in a in a tiny yes. little town. <laughs> yes, in the countryside. Yes, so that, that that's how crazy I am, son. I know, I know. Um, and you can check me out on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Uh, friend me on Facebook if you want. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> and you can also check out a short film that um, Kier released that I had the pleasure of helping co-write. It's called Duchess, everybody. 
Oh, did, wait, did you just I plug the trailer? Just, I'm going to double plug The film's not out. It's just I'm going to double plug that shit. Oh, did, did I yeah. say the film was out? I meant the trailer was out. The trailer is out. The trailer is out. Go check it out. Um, other than that, we love you, and we'll see you next week for World War Film. <laughs>